everyone, and thank you for joining us on the PCICS podcast, the official podcast of the Pediatric Cardiac Intensive Care Society. My name is Sadie Rodriguez, and I'm a pediatric cardiac intensivist at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta and a member of the PCICS podcasting committee. Today, I have the amazing opportunity to speak with Dr. Jill Chalette and Dr. Stephen Schwartz. Dr. Chalette works at the University of Rochester, where she's the medical director of the Pediatric Cardiac Care Center, as well as the program director for the Pediatric Cardiology Fellowship. She is one of the leading authorities in blood cell modification, conservation, patient blood management, and thrombosis, and has led and participated multiple prospective randomized controlled transfusion trials. Dr. Schwartz is the head of division of cardiac critical care medicine at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada. He is also a leading authority and prolific author on single ventricle physiology, the impact of inflammation on cardiac function and oxygen delivery and metabolism after cardiopulmonary bypass. The podcast today is going to focus on the work that they have both participated in and generating recommendations on red blood cell transfusion in infants and children with acquired and congenital heart disease from the Pediatric Critical Care Transfusion and Anemia Expertise Initiative, also known as TAXI, the Pediatric Critical Care Blood Research Network, also known as BloodNet, and the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigation Network, also known as POLICI. Dr. Chalette and Dr. Schwartz presented their works entitled Consensus Recommendations for Red Blood Cell Transfusion Practice in Critically Ill Children, the TAXI Initiative, and Cardiac Transfusion Trials, What Should Our Practices Be in the CICU, respectively, at the Joint Pediatric Critical Care International Meeting in London in December of 2019. This meeting was a joint endeavor of PCICS, the Pediatric Intensive Care Society of the UK, and the European Conference on Pediatric and Neonatal Cardiac Intensive Care. Thank you both so much, again, Dr. Shalette and Schwartz, for joining me to talk today. Dr. Shalette, if you could start our listeners off with a little bit of background about what the previous transfusion practices were, the lack of recommendations, and why was it so important for the TAXI initiative to form to come up with recommendations? Certainly there's been mounting evidence across the adult arena that there are risks of transfusion, and that's been more and more recognized over the years. The adults, of course, have done some groundbreaking work that demonstrates that restrictive transfusion practices are probably not inferior to liberal practices, but the pediatric literature really has been lacking. You know, the beauty of the taxi initiative was really getting all the experts from across the globe together to really do a systematic review of the literature and really see what is the evidence that's actually out there. They really were very rigorous using implementation science and evidence-based medicine to really make sure that the evidence was graded appropriately. And it really provided a forum for all the experts to get together and discuss what are we doing with these transfusions across the pediatric critical care spectrum. And really, there was not a compilation like this before. There's been some groundbreaking work, the TRIPICU study, published in 2007 in the New England Journal by Jacques Lacroix and his colleagues, and there were several offshoot subgroup analysis from that work. Other than that, not a real robust evidence out there. And I think the clinic at the bedside really left with their best assessment based on clinical parameters, which is probably what's most important anyway. But at least we provided a framework both on best practice and the clinical recommendations that were able to be made when evidence was present, and then prioritizing research recommendations for the future. And so I think that the clinician hopefully will go through these recommendations and really have a more understanding of what the literature supports. 
Thank you. And for the listeners who weren't able to attend your wonderful talk today, you gave great, concise, and thorough summary of the recommendations. Can you give us some of the highlights of the recommendations that the Taxi Initiative came up with that you think are the most important? Well, you know, probably the good practice statements are most important, really just emphasizing that, you know, the clinical context of the patient and their pathophysiology needs to be considered in addition to utilizing a hemoglobin concentration. And that certainly recognition and treatment of anemia is important and minimizing blood loss, of course, as well with the idea that, you know, transfusions are not without risk and should be really carefully considered. You know, the different subpopulations have varying degrees of evidence, but I think for all of them, you have to take the clinical context at hand in the decision to transfuse. And certainly more research on patients' ability to compensate for anemia is needed, physiologic and biomarkers that would indicate intolerance to that anemia is warranted because the bedside clinician has to balance the risks and benefits of transfusion with the risks and benefits of the anemia. So by no means are we saying no one should ever get transfused, but hopefully it can be taken in patient-specific context opposed to hemoglobin isolated concentration driving that decision. Mm -hmm. And how can a clinician take all those different components of the physiology, the patient-specific context, the good practices, and rectify all of those things at the bedside? No, I don't know that anything needs to be rectified. I mean, you know, the intensivist is hopefully in a setting where they have all the monitoring tools at hand and where they hopefully have enough data to provide them with a sense of what the patient's cardiopulmonary status is and whether they are able to compensate for the degree of anemia that they have. And there are some patients who will not be able to, and that's where good clinical judgment comes in. Guidelines inform practice, but don't replace clinician judgment. Mm -hmm. Dr. Shillette, you were just mentioning that the recommendations go into the different subpopulations. Why is it important that we think about patients in different subpopulations? The critically ill patient's ability to compensate for anemia is going to depend on the disease process at hand. So one of the patient groups that receives the most transfusions is the patient on mechanical circulatory support. So patients on ECMO or having VADs or um, even the renal replacement therapy patients. And they are heavily transfused for good reason. And you know, that's obviously a very different patient than the child with um, maybe isolated lung disease that isn't suffering from severe hypoxemia or at least is able to compensate for that. The other populations we looked at were those with uh, sickle cell disease. Uh, that's a very specific population, especially those who get acute chest syndrome, patients following uh, bone marrow transplants, which of course is a whole other kettle. So the hope was to have some general principles and recommendations based on hemoglobin and physiologic thresholds, but also be able to identify the literature that exists in relation to specific subpopulations. Critical care as intensivists, we take care of um, children who present with a variety of different illnesses, but certainly contextually what the disease process is, is going to matter and inform your decision. Dr. Schwartz, you started your presentation off reviewing some of the physiologic data and studies and benefits of transfusion. Would you be able to recap some of that for our listeners? 
Sure. I think when you consider why we give people transfusions in the pediatric cardiac intensive care unit, we often are geared toward treating physiology. I mean, I think when we're at our best, at least that's what we're trying to do. I think one of the things that you know, came out in the, the taxi discussions is there's really a variety of practices around. And there are still units and physicians who treat to a number, you know, hemoglobin number, divorced from the physiology. But as Dr. Shalette was talking about, we need to personalize this. You know, there's the people talk about precision medicine and, you know, it doesn't have to be artificial intelligence. It can just be you know, taking what you understand as principles and guidelines and applying it to what you then understand about the physiology of that patient. So when you look at what We've understood about transfusions, red cell transfusions, for a long time in children with congenital heart disease. We know that they increase oxygen carrying capacity. We know in certain populations, the cyanotic children in particular, they increase saturation. But there are some much older studies, you know, from the, the 1980s that we've all kind of forgotten about that were done in the cath lab, primarily kids with left to right or right to left shunts who were given acute packed cell transfusions and shown acute hemodynamic benefit in terms of the kids with left-to-right shunts, showing that they had an improvement in their QPQS, an improvement in their, their overall hemodynamics. And, you know, in theory, that translates to a decrease in heart failure as a clinical picture. Similarly, kids with right-to-left shunts improve their oxygen delivery and their saturation when you give them a transfusion. Now, there are limits on that. In practice, it doesn't seem to be a linear relationship. There are upper limits of hemoglobin, which we didn't talk about in the session. You know, in my own experience, it's probably around 14 or so after which you don't get much more bang for your buck um, unless you're actively bleeding or something like that. But at the same time, even though it's physiologically beneficial, that means that you should reserve the practice for people who are in a position where they might physiologically benefit. Just having a shunt doesn't mean your shunt is causing you a big problem, and just having the shunt doesn't mean you need a really high hemoglobin to cope with it. Right, yes, that's a great point. And to that, just like in the clinical scenario you brought in into your talk where you described a patient that was complicated and had individualized data to the scenario, you know, you guys are both authorities on the topic and have all of this knowledge at your fingertips and can approach a clinical situation, I'm sure, with much more ease and elegance than the rest of us can. How would you recommend for a clinician to approach everyday situations in decision-making with the risk-benefit ratios of transfusion? Yeah. I'm not sure that, uh, I can't speak for Dr. Shalette, I'm not sure I approach it with any more ease than anybody else. <laughs> I, I think that the for those who didn't see the talk, you know, I presented a case at the end, I called it a story with no moral. And as a kid who, post-op tet, who was struggling for a variety of reasons, who had a low hemoglobin, 7.4, who I would virtually always transfuse, to be honest. I did not in this case because the child was a Jehovah's Witness, and after speaking with the family and the surgeon, because it's kind of a big deal to transfuse somebody who's a Jehovah's Witness, we agreed to try a couple of other things, give it one hour and see if it worked, and things got a bit better. But the kids still struggled more than a post-op tet with no residual lesions should struggle for the next several days in ways that I can't swear to you were due to having a low hemoglobin, but I also can't swear weren't. And I think that that kind of gets into the, the challenge. So, you know, I think we can probably all agree that a kid with a good biventricular repair who has no signs of low cardiac output, you know, good heart rate, good blood pressure, seems to be off the ventilator, recovering well, eating well, doesn't have any, you know, concerning lab values. You know, if they had a hemoglobin of nine, I don't think in this day and age, I don't think many people would transfuse that child. I think there probably are a couple of people who still would. 
they should probably reconsider their practice, in, in my opinion. I think at the same time, you know, you have a kid who's hemorrhaging and heading towards an arrest. We'd all transfuse that kid. We wouldn't negotiate it at all. I think that there are these cases that are in a gray area. I will say, I think people of my generation, I hate to say that on tape here, but um, so people who trained in the late 80s, early 90s, saw a lot of unexplained sudden death in a lot of high-risk patients. We don't see that as much anymore. But just in talking with colleagues who are of a similar vintage, I think when you know, we, we see kids who start to look marginal in certain groups, shunted single ventricles, poor ventricular function, especially if you throw on, you know, other things, significant AV valve regurgitation, significant pulmonary hypertension, not all in the same patient, hopefully. <laughs> um, but, but those sorts of risk factors, you know, we all get really worried that the thing that's going to tell us we made a mistake by not transfusing is a sudden death event, mm -hmm. which is what we're trying to avoid. And, and as I said in one of my slides, I think that that's highly subjective, but it's not unimportant. I think that's where experience comes in a bit just in terms of maybe you're willing to do a little bit more preventive things. And I think a kid who's in that situation, let's be honest, I don't think that giving them a transfusion is going to make them stay in the hospital three more days at that point. Mm -hmm. There's enough going on. They're going to be around for a while anyway. You're probably not costing them with a transfusion, although I can't prove that. Right. No, but I do think you bring up an excellent point that as surgical mortality is becoming less and less, it's more the morbidities and cost of medicine and other areas that our attention is turning to. And so as you guys are leading these rigorous prospective trials that are helping to inform our practices, where would you like to see the future of research go? And what are the gaps that you think are still left to be filled? That could be for either one of you. Yeah, I'll start and then I'll let you have the last word. I think that uh, realistically, it's hard to do large multicenter randomized controlled trials in this. I think there's probably equipoise in the field. I don't know that there's equipoise in individuals enough, especially for the high-risk patients. And, you know, even then, people might agree to it, but there's going to be some unease depending on what levels you, you use. I do think that there is practice variability from institution to institution. I think we're getting a lot better at looking at groups like PC4, PAC3, to help us use that as a kind of unrandomized trial, not randomized at least on a patient basis, but it might kind of be randomized by institution, if you will. And you can at least learn about practices. I, I think, as I alluded to in my talk, I think one of the biggest takeaway messages from Dr. Shillette's trials that she's done, and really should be just remarkably commended for pulling off in a single center, are that it is okay for some of these high-risk patients to have a lower hemoglobin. They're not all going to die if they have a low hemoglobin. but you know, even in, in the work that you did, there were patients who were randomized to a particular arm who still got transfusions outside of the protocol for various reasons. You know, even in an institution that I would presume is highly, highly aware of the risks of transfusion. So I think we're going to need to look at creative ways to look at data. Fortunately, we're going to have more creative ways to look at data and try to inform our practices. Maybe the simplest thing is when you're faced with an individual patient is stop and think. Good advice. It's hard to get better than that. You know, when I first started, you know, the adage that, you know, blood has magical properties, 
and that certainly the surgeons seem to believe that at times. You know, certainly blood is indicated for the unwell, the patients that Dr. Schwartz mentioned with shunts and pulmonary hypertension and poor function. I don't think anyone could argue that. I think if the work has demonstrated, though, that stopping and thinking is what makes good sense, I think that that's a win. You know, I don't know how many hemoglobin threshold trials and if that's really the right thing to be looking at. If we had some better mechanism for indication of anemia intolerance, you know, we really need to find ways to tell us that, you know, our patients aren't tolerating the anemia. We have markers, mixed venous sats and echoes and cath data and the like. But there are some studies out there that, you know, would suggest transfusion is helpful and then some that it's not, and we don't know why that is. And so whether it's individual variability, whether it's a genetic makeup, whether it's something at the endothelial level, it's hard to say. So I think that the research hopefully is going to move forward with physiologically based markers for an indication of anemia intolerance opposed to using an isolated laboratory value. And I certainly agree, these patients are so complex, varying ages, surgical techniques, bypass techniques, post-operative management, the physiology itself, countercurrent comorbidities, that it's really hard to study this in a, a large group across centers and have it be meaningful. So, you know, we do the best we can. Well, we appreciate all of your work and foresight and your vision. Thank you both for all of your expertise that you've shared with us today. Thank you both. You're welcome. To all of our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. And please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website at PCICS.org, where you can find more information on how to become a member and enjoy updated information on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song I Don't Know by Grapes was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.